This is the Liberal Europe podcast by ELF. Bringing liberal ideas into the political debate. This week with Leszek Jezdziewski. Hello, this is Leszek Jezdziewski here. Welcome to Liberal Europe. My guest today is David Korani, who is a board president and executive director of Action for Democracy. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Leszek. It's a great pleasure to be here. And I'm so glad that uh, we have you here starting this, this year of Liberal Europe. Um, because I think the first question would be, and uh, I would like our listeners to know, what institution is Action for Democracy? Can you tell us a bit more about the background, about the mission, how you founded this very specific, I think, and, and very important institution for everyone who is interested in democracy in the world? Absolutely. Yeah. And again, thank you for, for having me on the, on the show. The Action for Democracy is still a relatively new institution. We, we founded, uh, as we like to abbreviate it, A4D, not to confuse it with AFD, which is a very different organization. <laughs> uh, we founded Action for Democracy in January 2022. Uh, and the original inspiration for founding A4D was rooted in the Hungarian situation. I am Hungarian. I uh, come from Hungary. I've been watching the uh, democratic backsliding of my country for the past now more than a, a decade. And we wanted to establish an institution that could capture support for democratic movement, democratic forces uh, in a nonpartisan fashion, but nevertheless in a, in a, a forward-leaning fashion in the sense that we wanted to as much as we could with support from the outside, mainly coming from diaspora Hungarians, even the playing field in, in the Hungarian political context. But we quickly realized uh, that this is an institution that could really tap into a broader global sentiment and, and could tackle a broader global challenge, which is democratic backsliding in many other countries as well, including up until quite recently in, in Poland, of course, and in many other places in, in the world. So we quickly realized that Action for Democracy really has the potential to become a global institution that could capture the support of like-minded fellow Democrats. And, and what we are trying to do, what we are aiming to do is to establish a, a global solidarity network that Democrats could use to help each other in these struggles for their democracies. Well, I mean, even before uh, founding Action for Democracy, you've been pretty active, uh, well, not just domestically, but internationally, um, and, uh, well, politically and in civic society. And since you started, so I'm wondering, what have you learned after you started uh, A4G? Do you think that there are some challenges that you haven't realized that before you started this organization? And... What sorts of challenges you see? Because I know you're working, maybe you won't be mentioning or unless you want to name specific regions or, or places that you're, uh, that you're active. But I, I would like to see, do you see some common threads that you, uh, that, you, that you realized only after you became um, engaged in the, in the Action for Democracy? Absolutely. Uh, there are a couple, actually, uh, and I've been... Very excited, but also humbled by this journey so far. Uh, I think the main challenge or one of the main challenges that we face is just the overwhelming demand for something like this. There are so many what we call battleground states, uh, the Hungarys, the Polands, the Brazils um, of, of the world. Uh, and we have received 
very positive feedback and, and overwhelming demand for you know coming in and, and helping to support again in the nonpartisan fashion civil society organizations who are fighting the the, the good fight and, and fighting the for the good cause. Uh, so that's that's one. Like, how do you how are you being selective? How do you do this in a in a coherent uh, and impactful fashion and being selective in a smart and strategic way that you are actually only helping to boost causes and in places where you can actually make a, a real difference. So that would be number one. Number two is is the difficulty of community building, at least a sustainable community uh, in this day and age. Then everything is essentially led by the news cycle and attention spans are short. So how do you, how do you establish an organization uh, that would have a lasting community built around it? And we deliberately wanted to take this slow. We have had very positive early successes, including in fundraising and community building, but we, we are playing the long game here and we are really trying to create something I'd like to call the Doctors Without Borders equivalent in the democracy space. So a global charity organization that you could give as an individual to help support democratic crises and, and uh, countries in, in, in democratic crises and facing democratic backsliding. So that, that would be number two, sort of community building and, and how difficult it is to build uh, responsibly uh, a sustainable community around an issue, uh, no matter how prevalent and how important that issue is, because there are so many competing challenges. Uh, issue number three, I would say, and this is going to be a make or break year from that perspective, is is uh, we are primarily focusing on an American, uh, but also a European audience. And of course, this is going to be a huge year for both the US and, and Europe from a democracy perspective, Europe having European parliamentary elections and a couple of other key elections like in Austria, and of course the US having uh, the election in, in November. And, and because of that, my concern and what we are trying to address as an issue head on is uh, a, a more isolationist inward looking United States. And how do we make the case that fighting for democracy, not just here in the US, but globally uh, is going to be critically important also for U.S. democracy, so that would be that would be the third piece of the puzzle. We're definitely going to touch on the, uh, on U.S. and and European elections, but I wanted to ask you. Uh, actually, a friend of mine uh, from from uh, ELF organizations is the partner of the podcast. When when they've heard that I invited you, he immediately responded that uh, well, there is the whole hate campaign, or, or there was a campaign against you in your home. Um, country Hungary. Can you tell us more about it? Why you became well a sort of personal non grata in your in your home country? Um, happy to. Um, I, I always live by the creed of what Winston Churchill said about you know if the fact that you have enemies means that you have accomplished something already. So I am <laughs> more than proud to have uh, Viktor Orbán and his ilk putting me on the very top of their enemy list, which uh, means that we touched on a nerve and we are doing something that could potentially be dangerous for these people so that's that's i guess is a good thing and i i i consider that as as a as a validation in many ways that we have become an impactful and an important organization in a short period of time um frankly speaking i i find it perverse especially the personal attacks uh but sort of the main line of attack in hungary is that this is foreign intervention and, and i actually wanted to list that as sort of the first challenge I genuinely believe that creating this international solidarity network is nothing out of the ordinary. 
this is something that international institutions, foundations uh, have been doing for, for all these years, supporting democratic causes, civil society organizations, nonpartisan causes. What we have done in Hungary, uh, what probably created or uh, to some extent maybe have created this us in the heads of, of, of the government actors is that we, we were more unequivocally critical of authoritarian leaders and authoritarian forces like Viktor Orban. Uh, like Bolsonaro and Brazil, uh, we, had, we have been naming names. So we have we have we have gone maybe one or two steps further than usual. Support goes for uh, these causes, and we have been like, quite vocally critical of uh, what real stakes are and and how we should fight back. Um, so that's that's I think one that uh, that is a critically important factor. Uh, and then I think it's just the sheer magnitude of the support uh, and the fact that we could actually mobilize the Hungarian diaspora to a large extent around causes. Um, and this has been a largely dormant community from a political perspective. Uh, they have been, for the most part, uh, quite detached from Hungarian political realities. Uh, and what we have been trying to do and what Action for Democracy also aspires to be is an institution that could capture diaspora support and channel it into to their home country. So it's not just Hungarian diaspora, but also Polish diaspora and also Brazilian diaspora and Cambodian diaspora and Venezuelan diaspora. All these diasporas that very often, again, they don't they they, they are aware of what's going on in their countries and and they are concerned about what they see from an authoritarian political development perspective, but they struggle to find meaningful ways to intervene in, in the best sense of the world and they have every right because they are citizens of the country and they have members of the political community and very often they still end up voting which we very much encourage but they didn't have a frictionless way to to support causes and what we are trying to offer them is is, is an easy bridge to like here are the five civil society organizations or GOTV campaigns that you could and you should support because it will have an impact on, on the ground but again circling back on on the Hungarian attacks I, I think we really for, for uh, the, the most part, touched a nerve that, that I think ringed some alarm bells in, in, in the incumbent regime that this could be over time. If we are successful in mobilizing the diaspora, if we are successful in continuously raising meaningful amounts of money, could be could be an issue for the uh, regime. Do you think that Hungary uh, has moved past the point of no return? Or do you feel that you can still call Hungary a democracy? It's it's a tough question. Um, there were many monikers and labels lying around, including by the European Parliament and, and many other institutions. I wouldn't necessarily want to open the debate. I, I still have faith uh, and a strong belief in Hungarian civil society and, and the chance for, for change. It is, as time progresses, increasingly harder and harder to do at the ballot box because of all the measures that the government is taking uh, in the field of, you know, Dismantling independent institutions, rules, rule of law, checks and balances, attacking the independence of the judiciary. Although hopefully there, there was a little bit of uh, progress there because of the pressures of the European Union. A long story short, it's it's going to be very hard. Uh, I always say that you know these type of authoritarian regimes seem to be incredibly stable up until the very moment they collapse. So you actually don't know when that's going to happen. Uh, uh, I don't know when that's going to happen. It might be two years from now. It could be 10 years from now. It could be 20 years from now, hopefully a little sooner. Uh, but it's, it's as time progresses again, it's harder and harder to actually 
do that uh, at the at the ballot box because of the incredibly imbalanced playing field from a media perspective, from an institutional perspective, from a financial perspective. So uh, yeah, it's going to be tough. I wonder uh, if you can sort of identify a key moment uh, which which was crucial for the future of Hungary. I'm asking also in the European context because we see so many countries where the populists are on the rise. And I think it's very hard for people who hadn't lived through the regime of sorts like Orban or Kaczynski to understand the salami tactics of sort of moving up to the point after which it's very hard to do anything. So is, is there something that you sort of thing you could try to advise, you know, people in France, Netherlands, Italy, elsewhere, what, what should they be watching for and what should be, they should be aware of if those governments were to succeed, hopefully not, in Austria, France, elsewhere? It's a great question, a tough question. Um, it's a couple of different things, I guess. And it's, it's, again, it's very hard to pinpoint like one particular instance in the last now 14 years in in Hungary, like that was the moment where it could have all been stopped. It's 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 tough to to do that, and and Orban unfortunately is is masterful in boiling the water gradually so that the frog doesn't jump out and doesn't realize that uh, it's being killed. Uh, so it's 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 tough, I guess. You know, the changing of the constitution, the rewriting of election rules at the very last minute before elections, the attack on the judiciary, starting with the constitutional court in Hungary or in Poland for that matter. Uh, so these are all orange or if not red flags. Uh, but again, the, the tough part of this is that it's all parts of the big puzzle uh, and independently they seem to be possible to resolve, but unfortunately they all come together into this sort of authoritarian fortress, then it, it, it will be very, very hard to dismantle. My sense is, just to answer that question in a straightforward way, like 2018, I think, was 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 a critical moment. And 2022, uh, again, with the elections, in many ways, I think what came out is that the, the election system that Orban created in a perverse way, again, in Hungary, it seems to be quite democratic on the surface. But because of the whole politic, party political structure in, in Hungary, if the opposition comes together and, and unites itself uh, as it did in 2022, then it will lose because of all the internal divisions still in the minds of voters. If it doesn't come together uh, and if it runs on separate tickets as it did in 2018, it will lose again because uh, because of the election system is such that uh, the individual constituencies matter matter predominantly. So it's, you know, rewriting the rules of the election system and tailoring them, gerrymandering to gerrymandering and a, a bunch of other stuff to do to the, the ruling party needs is, is another major red flag that I would I would definitely bring up on the very top of the list. Uh, we mentioned, uh, well, you mentioned uh, upcoming European elections. To what extent do you think they will sort of shape the future of particular European countries as well. Do you, do, do you feel that the, the fact that populists, well, most likely will gain more seats, do you think this is a danger for European project? Or do you think that it's, we should fear more the sort of counter-revolution of sorts of hap that happened in Hungary and before in Poland that did 
that this is what we should be uh, looking for and, and countering, uh, rather than trying to to get hold of you know, a couple of more seats in European Parliament. What's maybe uh, your organization? Do 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 you feel that you should get involved in this particular um, competition, or do you feel that there are some others battlegrounds that that seem to be more important? Um, let me start with the latter question. We will definitely want to be involved, not in the competition per se, because again, we are not supporting you know, political campaigns or we are not supporting individual candidates. What we are trying to do is to increase democratic participation. That's what we have done in Poland by supporting many of the GOTV campaigns uh, and particularly focusing on women and, and youth mobilization, which is going to be absolutely critical for the survival of democracy in these countries. Um, so we would want to be involved in the European Parliament elections as well, trying to increase turnout. And I mentioned the diaspora sort of ethos and identity of action for democracy. What we are looking at and what we are trying to do in the context of the EP election is to focus on EU citizens living and working in other EU countries. Again, this is a fairly large constituency, about 11 million citizens with voting rights living and working in other countries, Poles in the Netherlands, uh, Romanians in Italy, Hungarians in Benelux, etc. So it's 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 a largely under-addressed community, uh, very you know, pro-Europe, very pro-integration, of course, their livelihoods depend on it in, in many ways, and we are trying to help mobilize them. This is this is what we, we have in mind. Uh, so turning into so to, to, to the bigger question, it's a tough one because European Parliament elections are always sort of local elections, even though, of course, there are always European issues on the table. But by and large, the EP elections are 27 different elections in, 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 in the different countries. So the domestic issues and domestic political issues very, very heavily featuring that. So in many ways, there is just no way around that. You will have to address those, those issues. Um, sort of the big picture question in terms of will the center hold and will this pro-integrationist moderate center party alliance consisting of you know, the four major parties or party families in, in, in Europe, uh, is that going to hold? I think it's a critical question and I think it's going to be absolutely critical for the survival of the European European project. Uh, and this has been a siege that's been going on every five years. We are talking about the, the, the resurgence of, of populism, nationalist populism. I sincerely hope that the center will hold. Uh, I think at the end of the day, what we need to do is to confront those very hard policy questions that end up feeding the rise of these nationalist populist parties from the Netherlands all the way to to Hungary and of course immigration is one of them, which very often I feel we don't really have good answers as 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 pro-European uh, political forces. So it's 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 I think kicking the can down the road is no longer an option because sooner or later the chicken the chickens will hunt, will come home to roost. So addressing those hard political questions and coming up with meaningful policy policy choices will be absolutely critical to make sure that the center will hold for the longer run. And perhaps the, the last question, uh, it seems that perhaps more important uh, elections for Europe would happen in the US. So whatever is the result will, will shape the expectations and realities on the ground, not just in Europe, but well around the world. Uh, I wanted to ask you what sort of role you, you see for civil society in this huge um, uh, effort, which is the U.S. elections, well, first primaries, then you have elections. Do you think that civil society will play any significant role? You used to play an important role in the past. Uh, do you think that there will be sort of anti-Trump mobilization, or do you think that 
considering the current polls, we should get used to the idea that Trump would win. And if he wins, how do you see the 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 sort of effect for for the rest of the world and for the project that you are committed to, which is democracy in the world? That's a million dollar question, and of course. It's going to be huge no matter what happens. Uh, first of all, I, I do believe that civil society is already mobilizing here in the U.S. I think the writing is on the wall and, and the dangers are becoming increasingly obvious. As you point out, there is a real possibility that Trump will get reelected or will get elected again. Uh, and I think there is a real possibility that there will be steps he will make that will be genuinely disconcerting for the robustness of U.S. democracy, unlike he did in the first four years when he was probably not that familiar with the power of his office. Uh, so I think that there is a real a real danger there uh, that is increasingly obvious in, in American society and American civil society. So I see a lot of mobilization already. <clears throat> and of course, as we get closer to the November election date, I think that's that's going to be much more prevalent. I have high hopes for the U.S. democratic immune system, civil society included. Uh, so I really hope that uh, that uh, it will it will help. But the danger is real, and uh, I myself am I'm extremely concerned about about this danger. So um, and yes, as you point out, this is going to be absolutely critical for Europe as well. I think there is a lot of contingency planning ongoing in European capitals already in terms of what happens if Trump gets elected again, uh, and it will be extremely detrimental for the sometimes controversial but always quite critical role that the U.S. played in democracy promotion abroad. Uh, if Trump is the president, that role is going to be severely undermined. Uh, so it's it's going gonna, it's gonna to have enormous consequences for our agenda as Action for Democracy. Uh, we will carry on no matter what. Uh, and in many ways, I would argue that our job as Action for Democracy will probably be even more important uh, in that case and the support that we can mobilize and we can channel in these battleground states all around the world. If, if the U.S. ceases to be at least for four years, the, the beacon for, for democracy. Uh, but uh, yeah, let's, let's hope people not get there. Yeah, as Lenny Kravitz used to say, it ain't over till it's over. And let's hope that this democratic project won't be over and, uh, and this battle for 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 US is also not over yet. Um, so yeah, finger crossed and, and we'll do our best. Uh, David, we'll have to end here. Thank you so much for being us. David Karani, thank you. Thank you, Mishak. It was a great pleasure. Uh, thank you all for today. Uh, please tune in for Ricardo Silvestre next week. Until two weeks, goodbye. You are listening to the Liberal Europe podcast by the European Liberal Forum. This podcast was co-financed by the European Parliament.